I'm glad to be uh, going through this with everyone. You're fine. Uh, so <laughs> a, a little bit about myself. I'm, I, I currently work as a commercial oysterman. I run a company called Seaborne Oyster Company, and we've got about six acres of shellfish grounds that we manage at Breach Inlet between oh. Sullivan's and Isle of Palms. Okay. We uh, sell our wild, uh, traditionally cultivated oysters to a number of restaurants downtown. We do a lot of educational and outreach uh, workshops. And then we do uh, events. And um, my time as an oysterman, it's just wrapped up my third full season. It's been about three and a half years that I've, I've, uh, I've been working in that capacity. And uh, I've been in Charleston. Prior to that, I've been in Charleston for 17 years. Uh, came down originally from Massachusetts oh in wow. 2002. Okay. I know, you and I both yeah. kind of these I have like a parallel these story. Da damn Yankees here. Yeah, uh, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, studied physics at the College of Charleston uh, with an emphasis on coastal processes and kind of the changes of uh, the coastal environment, uh, both the natural and kind of the man-made. Oh. And that was my entry into really Charleston's uh, natural systems, that and my time as a, I was a sailing instructor, okay. came down here to, to sail and to race, and uh -huh. um, it, was, it was a pretty uh, great foray into, into kind of the top layers of, of Charleston's natural world, right. uh, and that led me ultimately in 2008-2009 to, to establish an organization called Charleston Waterkeeper. Uh, that I served as as the waterkeeper and director for seven years okay. uh, before stepping down and starting Seaborne Oyster Company. Okay. So seven years working in nature. Um, you started Waterkeeper because, why specifically? So th there is a book uh, that was written by John Cronin and Bobby Kennedy Jr. called The River Keepers. And, and the book is all about this fight that really started in the 1960s up in New York on the Hudson River. And the, the fight was led by a lot of these commercial and recreational mm -hmm. fishermen who saw that their right to go out there and make a living on the water and to fend for their family was being deprived by all these sources of pollution mm -hmm. from this industrialized waterfront. And uh, this group of fishermen, they banded together um, through some counsel and advice of, of a reporter and some other uh, some legal scholars, they discovered that there was a statute from the 1890s called the Rivers and Harbors Act mm. that actually made it illegal for anyone to dump refuse or waste into navigable water. And this is up in the... Up in the Hudson. Hudson so up in the New York area? Exactly. Okay. And the, the interesting thing about the law itself is it was initially drafted as a commerce law to protect the trade of goods using our nation's highways, okay. which were our waterways back okay. then. Um, but fast forward to the 1960s, and the legal interpretation of that law, the Rivers and Harbors Act, was able to basically say that you can't dump any sort of refuse, whether it obstructs the, the physical navigation of a water mm -hmm. or uh, whether it comes in the form of pollution. So that, that was the, the, the beginning of kind of this environmental uh, movement that we saw in the United States mm -hmm. to begin fending for our rights to clean water, our rights right. to fishable water. So kind of a... Uh, commercial, I guess, motivating factor. It, it was, was yeah. but also cultural as it well. It was cultural. I mean, there, there were these communities up and down the banks of the Hudson River who had made a living in that capacity for mm. generations. And okay. so when you remove the ability to identify oneself as a commercial fisherman uh, in the community that your ancestors have been in for a very long time, right. you remove a piece of cultural identity um, because of some private companies. Uh, financial interest and so they they were fighting for that really so that's what I kind of want to tie um, and I don't want to interrupt your story yeah, no, no, no. but I think that gives gives people who are listening again this is Mika Gadsden you're listening to Miked Up on OM on OM radio which is broadcast live outside of, out of, 
Yeah, broadcast live from workshop, food court. I mess it up every week. Get to know me. All right. Um, but that I think that's where I want to pick up from because I think when we think of environmental issues, I know from an African American standpoint, it can almost feel as if this is something that um that only white citizens can get behind. When in fact, doing my research, just and and just loving history and in hearing you tell me about other regions who have fought for years and also learning through the legislation that's been on the books I'm learning that it's it's more than just it's not a color issue even though I think that's um an unfortunate I don't know effect of whatever but there's a cultural component to maintaining waterways maintaining green spaces um and there's a community aspect to it so let's talk about how I guess let's talk about oh wait so you and I met after after uh, you tell the story okay so yeah. so so fast forward it was it was kind of that that history so reading that book the riverkeepers book i was inspired to start this organization in charleston to focus on that same mm-hmm. effort but for charleston's waterways and charleston's mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. and uh, fast forward to 10 years later now working as a commercial oysterman and it, it's kind of finally begun to to bring that whole uh, inspiration full circle because now I'm, I'm quite literally making a living on the water and my livelihood depends on the quality right. of the water but the the Gadsden Creek issue in particular was an issue that I learned about because I lived in the west side uh, neighborhood for uh, uh, almost 10 years so you lived on the west side of Charleston correct for almost yeah. a decade okay and my time there like anyone who lives anywhere you're mm. out walking around, you're riding your bike, and you begin discovering these nuances of, right. of your community. And part of those nuances are the natural uh, nuances of the place. So you know, where are there unique uh, fruit trees that bloom in different parts of the year that you can go perhaps harvest with neighbor's Is permission? You, you know, do? Things I, I you didn't go do it. I like got some friends that, that <laughs> do that a lot. But what, what my... Um, what my curiosity led me to mm-hmm. was discovering the small little sliver of a wetland system in the heart of downtown Charleston, right next to Harmon Field. I would find things like sea oxeye and spartina and sea beans or sea pickles and all these species of flora that are associated with a wetlands habitat. And, and Right m- in the middle of... Right in the middle of, of downtown Charleston. Right. And, and the more I dug, the more I realized that there was this somewhat hidden... Uh, long forgotten, badly abused and neglected waterway called Gadsden Creek w- that was pumping through uh, this this area of the peninsula that had been kind of forgotten to time. And, um, and I want you to say the names of those species one more time for me. Sure. Yeah. No, you notice you notice seriously you're 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 going about your day, you're going about your week, your month, whatever, you're living on the on the west side. And you see what now? So sea oxide, which mm-hmm. is my personal favorite. Yeah. The reason for that is it's this this succulent species right. that's kind of this waxy, right. almost metallic uh, looking green right. uh, bush mm-hmm. that only grows at the high tide line. Right. And I've become pretty enamored by that plant in particular because if you go anywhere on the peninsula mm-hmm. and you see sea oxide, mm-hmm. it's an indicator to, to you, the, the observer, that that's where the high tide goes. That's why I wanted you to repeat yeah. it. Because, no, because I, I, it sounds, um, I don't know why. No, but I, I that connected with that connected with me the most whenever you would kind of take us through these areas and because it, it, it was like um it was almost like nature leaving us um a trail of breadcrumbs. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like i I thought okay, so yeah, so sea oxide is growing and so that's evidence that 
fresh water was there? Because we would see this in the concrete, correct? Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, it was popping up out of Haygood Avenue. Right. It's popping up by the ball, f the ball field over in Harmon Field. Okay. And that's an indicator that you've got some exchange of seed from that saltwater environment, right. and you've got you know enough of what that plant needs to survive. Enough wow. hydration, enough kind of salinity of wow. salt, and the f what I've as Charleston's uh, awareness of this conversation around flooding uh, mm. increases and our vulnerabilities to sea level rise and increased mm. storm events as that all increases to be able to see natural indicators like sea oxide mm -hmm. and where it is colonizing where it's growing mm. to me is a really it's exciting when you begin to look at the force and the will of nature it's not so exciting when we think about uh, our attempt to kind of thwart nature but where we see sea oxide unfortunately are oftentimes the most marginalized portions of the city. Um, we see Seoxai over on East Bay and Morrison where the on-ramp to the Mount Pleasant Bridge is, right? There's a uh, public housing there. Oh, and you yeah. see a huge swath of Seoxai there because- so that's like Nomo, the Nomo area. Well, and it tells well. you that that's where a lot of the high tide comes. Right. And same thing over in Harmon Field. And so, long story short, um, the, you know, there are all these natural, there, there are all these natural indicators. <laughs> over there that kind of began revealing themselves. And um, and for, for really four years mm -hmm. um, after that introduction, um, I've been working in some form or fashion, sometimes more dormant than others, other times more active, uh, to try to ensure that that natural, very special wild place was celebrated and also uh, and saved. And right. we'll, we'll touch on that later. But yeah. how we met, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, there was a, a Gadsden Creek marsh cleanup uh, this past September right. and uh, September 22nd and I was exhausted from a day of being out in the sun and mm. pulling trash out of the marsh mm. and a buddy of mine said do you want to come to a, a show tonight it's a concert at Music Hall and I was really reluctant just because of how tired I was I've kind of become a hermit over the past few years mm -hmm. and haven't been going out much and he said, no, you know, you, I think you'll really appreciate it. I think you'll really like it. And I, I go to the music hall, and that was uh, the, the live recording and the performance oh. of Benny Starr's uh, Water Album. Oh, wow. And uh, Shout who, out, who, Benny. Who was, who was emceeing, <laughs> but none other than, than Mika Gaston. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it was a blur. And it was, um, yeah. it was really, and I've, like I said, I've been here 17 years, and it was, it was this fresh, mm -hmm. uh, this, this kind of, um, you know, this fresh, yeah, uh, like a, a breath of fresh air. Very much so. In, yeah. in a way where things were being said right. that need to be said, things were being highlighted that mm -hmm. need to be highlighted. And it, I was I was blown away. I was right. inspired by the message. I was inspired by the frankness of the conversation mm. because it's all things that need to happen. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And I, you know what, too? And just actually, I never said this to anyone, but like I, I knew the elements of the show, but I did not know with the images, how they would strike me. So there was, um, was it John Golden? I hope I said his name right, or Golden. Um, his art, so basically it, it was his art, his photographs that highlighted all the, the, the water, um, all of the flooding uh, that's documented across the peninsula. And I think that struck me really, I never thought I would see it. I don't know, it struck me different. Even though I've seen his art before, um, I, I guess the gravity of that evening kind of hit me a little different. Cause I thought I was just gonna be up there talking a lot of black-ish. <laughs> but it was more than that. It was, it, it, it was, and it was something I felt like um, that that belonged to all of us, the environmental issue, the impacts that we're seeing. All right, I'm sorry. And no, 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 you're absolutely so right. Yeah, and, yeah. and the vulnerabilities yeah. 
of a disproportionate you're so, segment. You're so good at explaining <laughs> this. I just come in like, blah, 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 and you're really good. I'm sorry. No, but I mean, <laughs> the, the, the thing that really struck me was mm -hmm. that w what the tone and the spirit of what was being said mm -hmm. was that there is a disproportionate negative impact uh, to a very particular segment of our population. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is a function of the systemic pattern that's been mm -hmm. very much alive in our country for, unfortunately, right. many, many generations. Right. And so when that theme was being presented in such a powerful way that evening, I couldn't help but to think of the things that I was observing out with my, mm -hmm. my relationship with Gadsden Creek and my relationship with the Gadsden Green area and right. West Side Neighborhood Association, or the West Side Neighborhood, I should say, and I, it was, it was kind of affirmation of the things that I was seeing, that mm. those who are most vulnerable in the face of increased storm events and flooding are those who have been systemically marginalized in the city, mm. and, and we are at ground zero of all that. So that's mm. what inspired me to reach out and right. kind of uh, <laughs> excitedly want to show this case study that very much, in my opinion, was an example of everything that, that you all were, were talking about. And um, and that kind of led us to a, a, it, a great friendship. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Because I know you said, oh, this girl's last <laughs> name is Gadsden. She must know. <laughs> I had no clue about this Greek. And I love it, though. This is, But that's the hallmark of, like, your work. I don't. I didn't know you back when. I, I didn't know you during your Waterkeeper days. But I don't. You just seek people out, and you just don't let anything, like, not knowing someone um, stop you from just making a connection. It was not in vain um, because through you I got to learn a lot about this area, and I am very much curious as to know about my last name. <laughs> but uh, real quick, again, for station identification purposes, I'm not going to read the script. It's, this is mic'd up on OWN. <laughs> this janky show <laughs> an hour of activism every week very unapologetic we're speaking with cyrus buff i'm sorry i never say your last that name that was perfect All right. you got it yeah okay Nailed yeah it. sometimes <laughs> i keep you anonymous too just because i want to protect you appreciate i'm that. here with um my favorite environmental activist cyrus Buffum, and we're talking about all things gadsden creek back to green gadsden green um, and environmental racism. I'm looking at the books that you brought with you today, and I'm like, yeah, this is how I know I really rock with you. So you you brought The Color of Law, and you brought um, Ms. Ms. V, Barbara Gathers. You brought her from Back to Green, um, her book. Let's, you, you just, I, before I interrupted you, you were talking about how our country and its laws pretty much have placed people in these circumstances where we are vulnerable um, to a number of systemic issues. So to rewind quickly, you lived in an area, you came across this this creek, this, this green, this wetland area, this marshy area. You become invested. You work to, to, toward cleaning it up, bringing awareness. You go to the Water a water Albums live recording at the Music Hall, and now you're, you're energized to do what? What do you want to do? So th this is all in um, kind of in the context of a very large development on the west side of Charleston, mm -hmm. formerly called Horizon, now called West Edge, okay. that has proposed uh, two times now, first time in 2015 and the second time in 2018, mm -hmm. to actually fill and destroy Gadsden Creek. Wow. Um, it's about four acres today mm -hmm. of essential fish habitat and critical zone, which would be like all, all these different species of, of, of plants and animals that 
one associates exclusively with the salt marsh system. They exist in the heart of downtown Charleston. Wow. And so my, my work, though it began as somewhat of a passive relationship with this waterway, right. it soon led itself into kind of defense mode where I quickly learned that this creek was uh, under threat, not right. just by way of our community's apathy towards it and right. kind of right. ignorance knowing, towards yeah, it, right. but, but by this deliberate attempt to actually erase and destroy what remains of it. So wow. that that's what threw me into this discovery mode of you know, what is Gadsden Creek, what's its history, et cetera. And towards the tail end of my time at Waterkeeper, the, the lens through which I was experiencing Gadsden Creek and my work to, uh, to oppose the proposed filling of it was mm -hmm. really one dimensional and that was the environmental lens. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until uh, this most recent go around, this mm -hmm. 2018 mm -hmm. permit application to by the developers to, to fill Gadsden Creek that I began digging deeper into the story that is Gadsden Creek. Yeah, and uh, that, that story has roots. Yeah. Deep. And so you found, so I guess uh, you found that this West Edge project, the development, all of the plans that we currently see, the cranes in the sky, the buildings that are just newly erected, all of that actually comes at the tail end of this really long, deep story, right? Perfectly put, yes. Yeah, so what did you what did you learn about this? Because it looks like, it does look like a marsh to me. It looks like a, just a little patch of marsh. Sure. But what is Gadsden Creek? Sure, so Gadsden Creek is the last remaining urban tidal creek that has not been thrown underground in the, the peninsula of Charleston, kind of right. the urban core of Charleston, where you've got a strong history of uh, of community and built environment mm -hmm. on the edges of this natural system. And like I said, my initial entry into Gadsden Creek was through this environmental lens. And mm -hmm. to be very blunt with myself, that's a very topical uh, topical layer of, of, of a very complex uh, mm. kind of reality. And that, yeah. that the complexity of that <laughs> reality is only understood when you begin to understand the human element and mm. the human relationship, both uh, man and his own treatment of his fellow man, mm. and also man and his treatment of the natural world. Mm. And only through mm. kind of investigation of that do you begin to see that this story of Gadsden Creek, mm. again, in my opinion, exemplifies some of the worst chapters in Charleston's history. And I've been here for almost 20 years, mm. and I, I feel silly to kind of acknowledge this, but some of these chapters, mm. um, it hasn't been until my digging deep into the human story mm. of Gadsden Creek that I have become more fully aware of these dark uh, pieces of Charleston that right. frankly still... Right, uh, the vestiges of slavery. Still Ve exist. Right, and I, I guess this is where, um, yeah, I think this is important that you shared. I know you said that, you know, it's not your proudest thing to admit, but like, I think, you, your, I think your uh, experience is probably emblematic of a lot of people who who had the pri had privilege, sure. or in a pri privileged position where they don't have to consider uh, the racial component um, and, quite frankly, white supremacy and how it was able to move through uh, Charleston governance. Um, and so, yeah, and I know that that's something I sh uh, stressed with you and other people who are from that area. Um, told you how you know how to look at that or, or helped you look at that differently. So let me. So what did you find? So once you start digging as to what this creek was, what else did you? What did you start finding? S so 
uh, and I take a breath because yeah. <laughs> there's so much. No, this is great. Um, the you know so the the story of Gadsden Creek begins well before yeah. we colonized and by we humans kind yeah. of that that the surface of the peninsula. Right. Um, then as <laughs> as 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 man began to inhabit the peninsula, mm -hmm. this is speculative, but more than likely there was a a respectful relationship with this resource. It gave yeah. it gave sustenance. It gave fish, it gave oysters, it gave right. crabs, um, it, it, and, and it gave life, really. Right. Um, and when you look at the development of Charleston, you begin mm. to see this exploitation of our waterways mm. um, in pretty limited ways. You know, we begin to see them used uh, when our society was at an appropriate scale. You begin to see them used respectfully, but right. then as our scale increased, right. you begin to see that exploitive approach to and relationship with mm. with our waterways the pollution the you know the, the covering up the dumping up into right. that kind of thing but right. uh, you know until um you know un until i'd say m recent history mm. gadsden creek uh was able to escape the majority of those abuses wow. that that so many of our waterways throughout the country uh experience and a uh, case in point so the the history a good example mm. of a not necessarily a starting point but mm -hmm. just in terms of the public's relationship with this resource. In 1872, uh, I'm looking at an article from the Charleston News, mm -hmm. July 1872, and it says, the chief of police said, as complaints were being constantly made to him in reference to boys swimming near different waterfronts of the city, hmm. he was desirous of establishing three bathing places on each river and advertising the same. He goes on to list uh, those, those places on the Cooper River and then on the Ashley River. Uh, the west end of Broad Street beyond the mill ponds, the floodgate near the wharf of the Savannah and Charleston Railroad Company, and Gadsden Creek. Mm -hmm. So 1872, you can imagine that there was, uh, there was a community that used Gadsden Creek for a place of swimming. Right. And, um, we've also, Mika, you and I yeah. have, have s seen uh, some... Somebody's calling because <laughs> they don't know I have a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Keep yeah, yeah, no, we, we, learned some, we learned about the creek and how it was used. Um, go ahead, continue. Uh, so, yeah. and, th and there's this also a really, really powerful image that um, the curator at the uh, Charleston County Libraries found, uh, and it's an old postcard of an image from the 1860s showing a baptismal celebration um, ceremony, and uh, the label is Gadsden's Green, 1867. Uh, so you can see kind of the relationship with that body of water was one of recreation, one of spiritual um, embodiment, and then by the late 1800s, early 1900s, mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, the abattoir. I <laughs> didn't take French, so I don't know if that pronunciation is appropriate. But the, mm -hmm. the the butcher, yeah. um, kind of the the slaughterhouses, slaughterhouse, yeah. were on the banks of Gadsden Creek oh. on the west side of the peninsula, um, known as Butcher Town. By 1912, uh, the city mandated that Butcher Town and that kind of operation move north okay. of the boundary, okay. which would have been Mount Pleasant Street. And um, shortly thereafter, the community that either remained or began populating right. the headwaters of Gadsden uh, Creek was known as either Fiddler's Green or Gadsden Green. And this was a, a working class community, um, a community that was able to uh, to receive a lot of value from this natural system. I wow. mean, if you can if you can imagine standing on where Harmon Field is today right. and looking towards the Ashley River instead of seeing these large mm. mid-rise uh, apartments, right. you see 
100 acres of uninterrupted marshland with this very powerful tidal creek meandering through it. So, yeah, so, so for those who are listening, uh, we're just for you employing or encouraging you to use the theater of the mind. <laughs> Imagine if you're downtown, if you're near Burke High School, you're, you're, so you know that Harmon Field is right there across the way. You're standing in Harmon Field, and you, if you face that current day, if you faced Ashley River, you would see how much, how many acres? It was well over 100 Wow, uh, of just open waterways? Of, of just marsh, of beautiful. Mar- green. If, if you go yeah. out to rural uh, Wadmala or yeah. Edistone. Shout out Wadmala. That's right. <laughs> and you look at an undeveloped yeah. stretch of the low country, you see this viewscape that gives so much right. uh, to the spirit and to the communities that utilize it. So this area, I guess, experienced a little bit of like deindustrialization. Maybe um, businesses moved away. Blacks remained for ever, whatever reason. Either they were put there, pushed there, or... They remain there, so so people for the I guess those coming out of slavery, mm-hmm. um, out of Reconstruction, right? Um, so black folks are living there and just trying to make a life, make a community. Correct near Gasbin Creek. Correct. Um, I mean, because when you look at the the industries, there would have been slaughterhouses. There was a sawmill. Yeah. There was a steam engine right. that uh, powered all this industrial activity, mm-hmm. and the the working class, whether those be uh, newly uh, freed African Americans or immigrants from right. uh, from kind of a, an oppressed part of Europe, mm. th- that became the working community yeah. of right. of Charleston. So that's also similar to the borough where the borough homes used to be too near the aquarium. That was an immigrant and black African American like a densely populated area for for both immigrants and and blacks. Right. Okay. And wow. so so mm-hmm. then you fast forward mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I think a, a key piece to this history is. Uh, like I said, the human element mm-hmm. and a, a really great thing. If you go down there today, we you might walk across a plaque, and I know you've taken a, yeah. a photo of it no, of Harmon Field. You've encouraged me. Everything I do is because <laughs> you put it in. Yeah, go ahead. So Har- Harmon Field in 1918 was um, was a donation uh, by a gentleman, uh, the name of William Elmer Harmon, out of New York. And fascinating history of of Mr. Harmon, yeah. his father was a part of the um, Buffalo Soldiers. Get, okay. <laughs> wow. So no, so you really, because you, this is, this was already a fascinating story in and of itself, how Harmon Field came to be through philanthropy. Right. Um, but wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so this, this individual he kind of at the, you know, at the knee of, of his father mm-hmm. as a, as a young boy, and I'm speculating some of this story here, mm-hmm. kind of theorizing, but uh, whose father uh, worked very closely with uh, newly freed soldiers that uh, were a part of the first, um, if I remember, yeah. it was the first kind of c- civilian um, group of soldiers post-Civil mm-hmm. War mm-hmm. Um, during peacetime. And these strong relationships were established. And, and again, my, my projecting or theorizing here is that the son, William Harmon, saw his father's treatment of these soldiers right. as one of respect and one of mutual right. appreciation right. and that made enough of a mark on on this this boy uh yeah. mr Harmon, who is white um where he committed his entire philanthropic uh, agenda throughout his whole life to lifting up and celebrating african-american leadership uh artistry wow. um and was there these books that exemplify uh, the Harmon Foundation's work in supporting the Harlem Renaissance in the, the wow. early 1900s. So yeah, this is this is a great. I, I'm I'm sorry. No, I no, always no, interrupt because I, I get excited because you you've helped me uncover so much about 
Um, you know, there were some great, I call them accomplices. I don't believe in allyship. Allyship implies that you have to have some sort of mutual gain. Um, but Harmon, quite, quite, probably quite honestly, his father and the, the younger Harmon saw the value, um, saw the humanity of black folk and invested in that in ways that really, cultural ways, right. which is important. Right. So you just said that um, they, he supported the Harlem Renaissance more, more like, and then also supported a space, wanted to create a space here in Charleston exactly. where, where black folk could play and be free. Exactly, right. And it was the first, uh, wow. so he, he gifted $2,000 to purchase this wow. this track of land, wow. um, which is a segment of what today is still Harmon Field. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, let's see, I'm reading from my notes here. Mm -hmm. In So that was 1918, and then in 1920, uh, the Colored Women's Council raised funds to actually uh, construct a, a playground there. Yeah. But... Mr. Harmon wanted this to be a place, as you described, wow. that, that the community there on the headwaters of Gadsden Creek and in Gadsden Green could use freely mm -hmm. to recreate and to dream and to, and to enjoy. Wow. And um, a note here that says this was the first national playground south of Washington, D.C. for children of color. And, wow. and it was, I mean, this, mind you, this was 100 years ago. And that's not that long ago. No, when, it's when not. When we think of, mm -mm. you know, when we think of time and deep time uh, and geological time, kind of through the lens of a creek system, mm. that was in, that was a that was yesterday, you right. know. And and to think that that kind of um, unfortunate segregation, where there was this, um, you know, th this overwhelming and disproportionate allocation of green space and resources to one segment of the population and not to the other that was that wasn't that long ago yeah. and it's you know really unfortunate um so fast forward to the you know 19 1920s and mm -hmm. such and i have i know radio listeners can't see so there's okay. um Ho uh, hold on <laughs> let me just reintroduce you okay okay so for those just tuning in this is mika gadsden you're listening to mic'd up on ohm a weekly hour of unapologetic activist radio talk I'm here with my friend and guest, Cyrus Buffum. Uh, he is, I guess, affiliated with, or I don't know how you, what your title you officially have, but basically um, Friends of Gadsden Creek. Uh, that's the organization. And we're here talking about environmental racism, specifically in and around the Gadsden Creek. It's history, what it was, what it is, and what we can hope for what we hope for it to, to remain. So right now, Cyrus is holding up a piece of paper for those who cannot see. But if you follow Charleston Activist Network and the Friends of Gadsden Creek, you'll find this all on Instagram. But basically, this is from what year? 1934. And it's an aerial um, photograph uh, taken from 1934 of the Gadsden Green community and the creek. And, and then you see Harmon Field right there. Right. I mean, it, so, so we're looking at um, what looks like this huge marsh area. That's before any of correct. the... Okay, so yeah, um, yeah, and so we're looking at this huge, expansive marsh area, a hundred acres or so. Is yeah, that the creek? Yeah, prob probably well over. Well over, right? Okay, and Gadsden Creek and Harmon Field, really close to it. This is before it looks like anything like it, before Marriotts, before parking garages. Okay, exactly. All and right. so, I mean, the, the I think the it power. It looks beautiful, of, by it, the way. It does. Yeah, the power of this image is that you see this kind of. Uh, traditional Charleston archetype of of an urban environment. You see these single houses and these cottages and these mm -hmm. uh, little alleyways and you see green space and you see, uh, you actually see fishing docks on Gadsden Creek coming off of wow. these these communities. 
and then you have a ball field. You have uh, there would have yeah. been a school there, which is now Burke, Burke High School. Right. You know, you had this kind of self-sufficiency from an from a community asset standpoint. You had a natural system that right. that could give food and it could give um, economic and commercial opportunities. You had a community of of neighbors were in the right. true form of community, and then you had this ball field, this green space. You know, you had you had everything. You, you had needed. it all, right? Yeah, you had it all. Yeah. And and and, and uh, you know, and you know the Im important thing about this is this is what existed. You know, mm -hmm. this and this was all. I mean, this was in place. Right. And in order to disrupt right. something like this, mm -hmm. this set of interconnected community assets, mm. one needs to significantly disrupt it using force. Okay, so and what was that force? So you begin to see um, 1936, 1937 mm -hmm. with the New Deal, you begin to see oh this, this movement <laughs> towards kind of, um, uh, it quote unquote, you know, they can't see it on mm. the radio, but yeah. uh, improvements, kind of urban improvements, right. whether that be to support the automobile, whether that be to... Right. Um, uh, do slum clearance programs, which right. would have uh, seized huge swaths of communities, mm. deeming them unfit for habitation, and then erecting, uh, accessing federal funds to erect uh, public housing. Mm. And yeah, because there was a housing shortage. There was. Mm. Now, you know, but n mind you, though, this was still before the U.S. jumps into World War II. Okay. You know, 19 late 1930s. Um, certainly, there was still a, a shortage. But when you look back at this image of mm. Gadsden Green, the residents of Gadsden Green had kind of what was needed mm. to live a right. you know a, a great life. If if right. I lived here, I'd be beside right. myself right. I mean, having access right. to a title creek having access to a ball field and yeah and these are folks who yeah exactly so um these are folks like like a lot of my cousins who lived in this area they grew up uh on the water right. they grew up using the water not just to play in but to actually earn a living with so you had a way to earn income support yourself even maybe if you're not directly on the water yourself i'm sure you work work in and around something that came from that creek exactly um so yeah and so in the late 30s we're starting to see what deliberate like what are we trying what are we starting well, to so, see so as um, the city yeah. begins uh to to grow as any kind uh -huh. of system organism that uh neglects to see limits mm -hmm. as they do that there's this desire for um additional space mind mm -hmm. you this is a very very valuable section of the peninsula. Mm -hmm. This is a community right on the banks of a creek that feeds in directly into the Ashley River. You've got green space. You've got you know right. everything that one would want in an ideal community. Mm -hmm. This community has. Wow. And uh, what eventually happens is the city begins to kind of behind the scenes identify areas for slum clearance, mm -hmm. which was the the terminology back then, right. where there could be a seizure of private property in order to construct public right. housing. They just needed a reason. Correct. So And so coming. the reason, <laughs> 1938, two tornadoes sweep through downtown Charleston, mm -hmm. one of which uh, damages and inflicts a huge amount of, of damage both to life and property to the city district, Market right. Street, City Hall, right. that area, and then another one sweeps directly through Gadsden Green. Wow. And um, the the damage was significant, al although the damage per loss of life, uh, valuation of property damage on the southern portion of the peninsula was greater than the damage through Gadsden Green. Mm -hmm. um, the WPA, Federal Works Project Administration, offers financial support and mm -hmm. manpower to help address right. these negative impacts. Um, and th there were 
there were programs made available to kind of rebuild, if you will. Right. Within three weeks, um, not even a month after the wow. tornado sweep through, within three weeks, the city begins uh, the legal process to seize the Gadsden Green property, private wow. property from its residents uh, under this this title of slum, slum clearance. clearance. So, so just to, to uh, again, put this in perspective for people listening. So the hurricane, well, excuse me, the tornadoes come through. Um, they ravage lots of Charleston, but specifically one goes through Gadsden Green, a.k.a. Fiddler's, mm-hmm. Fiddler's, uh, Fiddler's Green? Yep. Fiddler's, yeah. Um, or, and the city uses that as a reason to clear. The, the, they, they designate this area as a slum as opposed to taking the funds that would have come federally to help rebuild Correct. this black um, metropolis. I don't know how you characterize but this black neighborhood they take it as an opportunity to seize the property. That's right. Right. Oh, wow. And, and you see, I mean, this is an excerpt um, yeah. from uh, the College of Charleston Archives. It says, immediately upon his arrival in the city, Mayor Maybank took steps for the relief of the needy and destitute. Soup kitchens and sleeping accommodations for homeless were set up at the Negro Fair buildings on Harmon Field for Negroes and at the YMCA and YWCA the Star Gospel Mission, and the Salvation Army for Whites. Mm. That was 1938. Then we see Mm -hmm. in November, (coughs) Mm -hmm. excuse me, Mm -hmm. November of 1938, um, an advertisement in the newspaper says, um, Negro's Plan Program, a program of amusements by the neighborhood lads and lassies will be offered at the Negro YMCA branch in Cumming Street. (coughs) Excuse me. No worries. Et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I might have you read that while I okay. take some water. No, oh yeah, do you have water? I have like, um, <laughs> take your time. Oh, you always have water. You're a water keeper. Um, this says, this article you pulled out from 1938, it says, uh, Negroes Plan Program, a program of amusements by ne- by neighborhood lads and lassies will be offered at Negro YMCA branch in Cumming Street beginning at 815 um, o'clock tomorrow, they wrote really precious, like, 8.15 o'clock tomorrow night. Um, it was announced yesterday that John H. Green, the program, uh, by, by John H. Green, that the program will include acrobatic stunts, tap dancing, singing, original sketches, and a special invitation is extended to white people. Proceeds will go to tornado sufferers. So this is proof that um, blacks who have lost a lot of property, maybe even some commercial uh, uh, property as well. They were banding together to raise money to to bring themselves back. Exactly. Right. And, and to rebuild. And, and, to, and they invited their their white <laughs> neighbors. So no, that was dope. Yeah. Like, and then what? And, yeah. And so then, so that's the tail end of, right. of 1938. Mind you, the city right. had already decided by that time, despite right. the wow. community's best efforts. efforts. They were trying to show, like, hey, we're we're still here. Sure. We're n- yeah. And and then uh, we find in, in doing some of this research, uh, digging through the archives, this letter, this really. Um, this this really tragic letter from 1940 and it's by an individual by the name of John A. Harris uh, who's listed as the secretary for the committee and the committee consists of 39 uh, homeowners in the Gadsden Green community and the letter is addressed to the Honorable Henry W. Lockwood the mayor of Charleston at the time Mm -hmm. this is 1940 so uh, a year and a half after the the tornadoes And it was obvious that the community had recently learned of the mm-hmm. city's plans to seize mm-hmm. their land and uh, to construct public housing. And yeah. this letter reads, and I'll, I'll pull a couple of excerpts. Yeah, uh, if, if yeah, you yeah. Get, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so we, the undersigned citizens and freeholders of the area affected by the proposed low-rent 
uh, cost housing project in the section of Charleston known as Gadsden Green, south of Line Street, west of President, etc., uh, do most earnestly and honestly protest against this area being used as a slum clearance project for the following reasons. They go on to give several reasons, um, one of which uh, that is extremely compelling. It says that a careful survey of all the homes in the affected area show that more than 80% of the houses are in good repair and the people living in them are respectable, honest, hardworking people with respectable connections throughout the city of Charleston among both white and colored people. Uh, and then it goes on to say that the residents are machinists, artisans, and school teachers, and others who have definite ways of supporting themselves. And then the most uh, tragic paragraph of this, it says, the fourth reason, that this is the largest group of colored property owners in any single area in the city of Charleston. If we are forced to give up our homes at this time, it will be the greatest tragedies to befall an unfortunate people. With most of our earning power on the wane, we will not be able to go out and face the world again trying to buy homes with sacrifices and privations that we once suffered. If we give another thought to this situation, there is not another single area in Charleston available to colored people where so large a group can purchase or build a home, and the few places that are available to our group are prohibitive in the purchase price. Mm -hmm. To go out now and live in rented homes or buy at a higher price than we can sell for would not be fair to our children nor to us, as it would only leave a flood of mortgages for our children to struggle along with. Let me, okay, so let, um, only because I want to make sure we have enough time. Yeah. To, to, this is amazing. So, Cyrus, you just read from a letter. Again, you just to reiterate uh, who it was written by. It was written by, I'm sure it was written by a host of folks, but John, the name on, um, that's signed at the bottom is John A. Harris. And basically, John was a representative from the community, probably a leader, probably like a Denmark VC or or Septima Clark. Oh, happy birthday, Septima. <laughs> happy birthday. Um, but John was, uh, he wrote this letter saying, hey, Mayor Lockwood, this is not a slum. Uh, this is not, these are not people who aren't interested in keeping this property. These are not people who need their rent. We're self-sufficient. We're economically, you know, we're upwardly mobile. We want to keep our land. We want to keep our property. And unfortunately, um, we know now that that's not the fate that was that these folks keeping the property wasn't what they were allowed to do. Right. So let me just in, in, only in the interest of time. Sure. Um, basically, at the end of the 40s, we just start seeing this beautiful creek again. We'll, um, there are pictures on Instagram. If you follow the Friends of Gadsden Creek, if you follow Charleston Activist Network, um, do you post anything on there? I don't want to. We, we need to get better at that. Don't worry. <laughs> no, no, but if you follow Friends of Gadsden Creek on Facebook and on Instagram, you'll see these beautiful photos. You'll also see a lot of things from the archive, the city's archive, which is what Cyrus leveraged um, in, in finding out why this creek is now just four acres. So around the 40s, we start seeing a, a, a very concerted effort to do what? Sure. Well, so, mm -hmm. you know, World War II, there was kind right. of a, a pause button hit throughout the city. Right. And then in the mid-40s, there was this big push right. for economic development. And the city's greatest asset that it right. had was its land and the vicinity wow. to the water. So it needed such. more land? So it needed more <laughs> land because that was the, the most valuable asset class that could be put on, on the city's balance sheet. Um, and But when you look at who and and the segment of the population right. that lived right. around and on this most valuable section of Charleston, mm -hmm. it was uh, it was a population that the city wanted to um, you know have control over, have right. more control over because the are you city talking about black people? Absolutely, okay. yeah. And because the city didn't have that land, the city and the city wanted that land, uh -huh. and so 
what eventually kind of unfolds mm -hmm. um, through the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, I'm, I have here an uh, advertisement from Billboard magazine showing wow. the yeah. Charles. Um, yeah, the I'll read it out. Yeah. This is um, 1953, 1950 I think. was an advertisement that Cyrus found in, in the archives, right? Yeah. 1953, it was Charleston County uh, Colored Farmers Fair. So this would take place, this would have taken place probably every year on Harmon Field. Um, it's, it's dated November 10th, you know, mid-November, right. right? Okay, so this is, they have already started filling in the creek by uh, then? Not, not quite yet, okay. but then in uh, the city's address in 1956, uh, the mayor says, sticking up like a sore thumb in the area, however, are the unsightly fair cattle and poultry buildings, now almost 25 years old. <laughs> These buildings, relics of another generation, which now defy adequate maintenance, should be removed. Uh, as a matter of fact, fairs, animal exhibits, carnivals, and similar activities for which these buildings were constructed should no longer take place in this improved area. Wow. Uh, the final sentence says, um, it may be necessary to hold the 1956 fair at this location. There certainly is no reason why the area should be afflicted with these activities after this year. And then the city, the following year, really begins to unroll, uh, roll out its uh, ambitious plan right. of land reclamation, which is let's create more valuable land on the backs of this Gadsden Green right. community that we can put on the balance sheet and show as, as an asset. Right. And so uh, you see uh, mayoral statement year after year after year from the early 50s going all, all the way to the 60s. All of this is in the archive, correct? correct? Yeah. Uh -huh. saying that um, your current administration has created 22 acres of land at the foot of Fishburn Street. Fishburn Street. Reliable independent appraisal has been made of the value of these 22 acres, and the certificate states that this 22 acres is conservatively appraised at 25000 an acre, or a total of 550000 Okay, so let's, let's kind of bring this back. So basically, they've created acreage, meaning they've dumped into the creek. Correct. So, so, yeah. And, and really, the creek... Uh, existed upwards until the late 1960s um, and then the city's reclamation program which was a goal to to reclaim right. or take 100 acres of marshland uh, between Spring Street and the Citadel they waited until the end of the 60s to then channelize and kind of relocate porch portions of Gadsden Creek uh, and it was only when the Department of Justice came down and said the city that they were violating the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899. So what year was that when the government stepped in? Late 1960s, early 1970s. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately what was left was this this new land that the, the city created um, and a community, the Gadsden Green community, that largely was forced into uh, renting through the public, uh, public housing units um, and the creek and the wetlands that was once at the, the forefront of their community had been taken uh, in order to create this valuable real estate. Wow. And uh, no, 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 <laughs> and it's it just it's it's so much uh, history. I'm kind of overwhelmed every time you tell me that. I'm not. Um, yeah, we need more than an hour. <laughs> we need way more than an hour. So just basically, Cyrus, they they just took the land, starting with the tornadoes. They they found an area um, that they wanted to just seize. They knew it was going to be an um, area that consisted of marginalized community members. Right. Um, they started to write, like you just talked about, the. Um, they kept identifying all of the, the fun activities or the, the, the activities that brought in money, revenue. They identified those as eyesores and as uh, this has to stop. So they put a lot of, they put a lot of uh, laws on the books that kind of strangled and restricted the movements of, of black folk in that community, correct? And, and the celebration of culture. I mean, when you yeah. think of, you've, you've opened mm. my eyes up to this, which is that mm. when we look at 
the relationship with the natural world. Mm -hmm. There are no greater examples than the Native American uh, mm -hmm. culture Indigenous and the African American culture, mm -hmm. because there was this this raw understanding that with the natural world comes support of and sustenance. Wow. And uh, and so there was, you know, when you, when you look at an agricultural society that hosts these fairs uh, as celebrating this cultural heritage of a connection with with the earth right. um, and, and you eliminate that, you eliminate the wetlands, you eliminate the marsh, you eliminate private property, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it doesn't leave much foundation to stand on and to be able to really fight for one's um, you know, one's one's rights. Do you feel? I guess let me kind of ask explicit question. Sure. Do you feel as if is that we've already answered this question? Um, what happened to Gadsden Creek? What was what was? Why did it happen? Just in a, if you could say that in one sentence, why did it happen? Uh, I know because the the community that that has always lived uh, mm -hmm. over the well over 100 years mm -hmm. at the headwaters of the creek, uh, their voices to oppose the seizure of mm -hmm. their land, their access to nature, uh, those voices were muted, mm -hmm. uh, oppressed, or completely censored, and, um, and, and, and we've, we've lost memory of that. And, and what can people do moving forward? What can people do to, um, to uh, to fight this because I think a lot of people think that okay this is done it's, a, it's sure. the, the land has already been seized the city's going to do what the city's going to do Charleston's going to Charleston what can we do so from a from a real kind of tactical standpoint uh, if one is opposed to the filling of what remains of Gadsden Creek mm -hmm. make sure you vocalize that opposition to the mayor to city council and to DHEC and the Army Corps of Engineers then beyond that we need to go out there and as you've really shown me and mm -hmm. our community we need to celebrate these stories of those who have fought for mm -hmm. justice and equality and you know and, and and uncovering those stories and finding inspiration in in carrying the torch is is i think the important part and what is coming up for both you and i so uh <laughs> we have have been uh kindly invited to present at uh, an, an upcoming meeting um asala is is hosting uh, a, a, a meeting next saturday in kind of preparation for their october national meeting or mm -hmm. conference in charleston mm -hmm. and the theme is is black migrations and we'll be talking about the story of gadsden creek and and the title that we came up with today mm -hmm. still a working title yeah but, it is uh, but it's cool well, yeah but we're going to be talking at the longshoreman's hall that's right what, and what day is that uh the <laughs> we're horrible Next Saturday, whatever Saturday. Day that is. it is and um yeah just please follow charleston activist network on instagram follow the friends of gadsden creek on instagram and facebook you can follow charleston activist network on facebook as well um cyrus thank you so thank you much you know i know we just like <laughs> believe me we've got sh we're gonna have so much content this is not the first time i'm gonna have please don't please be don't be strange to be continued no seriously because we didn't even we need like a part two and three um Thank you for the work you've done in this area. Thank you so much for digging and for bringing me into this. Um, I look forward to our work to expose the the, the history of um, just what the city's done, but how we can move forward as well and how we can empower folks. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mika. It's Aww. been my pleasure. Thank All you very right. much. I guess that's it. We're going to end the show today. And, yeah, get out the way for the next show <laughs> so they can, like, come in here. So until then, stay free, y'all. And, uh, yeah, stay black. Take care.